Welcome to Life Study of the Bible, provided by Living Stream Ministry and featuring the ministry of Watchman Nee and Witness Lee. Witness Lee served the Lord faithfully for more than 70 years, culminating with his exhaustive commentary on the entire scriptures called Life Study of the Bible. We're happy to bring you recorded excerpts from his ministry. At the end of the program, we'll give you the website where you can find out more about the remarkable ministry of these two men. But for now, we hope you enjoyed today's program. Sin is a wicked and despicable thing. The Bible condemns sin, and as believers, we must also condemn it. But sin is not the only enemy that we face in the Christian life. In fact, it may not even be the biggest enemy. So then what does constitute the main hindrance to believers, and what is God's remedy? Don't miss this Life Study of the Bible with Witness Lee, a program furnished by Living Stream Ministry and featuring the ministry of Watchman Nee and Witness Lee. Ron Kangas has joined us again today for another journey into the mysterious and remarkable pages of the Old Testament book of Exodus. Ron, it's really nice to have you back with us, and particularly today as we continue to look at Amalek, a formidable and very resilient adversary for God's Old Testament people. Formidable indeed. We appreciate a faithful ministry that not only unveils Christ, but exposes the flesh and applies the cross to it according to the divine revelation. So we look to the Lord to bless this program and our fellowship so that the real seekers of the Lord and his word who have been hindered by the flesh for so long may receive light, grace, and life supply that they may overcome and press on with the Lord to the consummation of his economy. Ron, we conclude this three-part series today from Exodus chapter 17. For the sake of those that may have missed these previous programs, I wonder if you take a minute and review the type that we see here in this chapter that points to the flesh as the greatest enemy that both we and God face in the accomplishment of his purpose. Let's remember that Exodus is a book of pictures, and we can understand the significance when we put the pictures together with the revelation in the New Testament. Amalek in type signifies the flesh. The flesh is the practical living out of what the Bible calls the old man. And the old man is the totality of our fallen being. So the flesh is the practical living out of our fallen being, our fallen person. And this flesh, as we have seen, is related to sin to Satan and the world. In your opening word, you mentioned about how we need to condemn sin. And this is right. But where is sin that we may condemn it? The Bible reveals sin is in the flesh. So we cannot really practically condemn sin without condemning the flesh, the living out of the old man, our fallen being. Furthermore, the world and Satan himself, are related to the flesh. When we put all these things together and we consider the picture in Exodus 17, it is not surprising to discover that the flesh is the first and foremost enemy. And although the Lord will grace us and pray for us and empower us, we need, according to the truth, 
to engage in a kind of direct warfare with this enemy according to God's economy. Well, Ron, we're going to join Witness Lee now as we find out exactly what the flesh is. In the Bible, there is such a basic principle that is the spiritual things revealed in the New Testament always needs some solid and practical pictures to portray the reality of that certain spiritual thing. We all know in the New Testament, Paul was altogether against the flesh. In the whole Bible, there's no word so strong as Paul used in Romans 8. In Romans 8, verses 7 through 8, Paul said, The mind and the flesh is even enmity against God, because the flesh is not subject to the law of God. Neither can it be. Not only so, the flesh also cannot please God. I do believe no other words is so clear, so strong, so emphatic as Paul's word in Romans 8. Yet, just by Romans 8 plus Galatians 5, we would be still not so easy to understand what is flesh. Especially the matter of flesh, even the word, the term flesh in the Bible is used in many different ways. So it is really hard for us to get into this spiritual thing. How to deal with the flesh. What is flesh? Flesh is this. Whatever is done, not by grace. That is flesh. And grace means what? Grace means God himself. And grace means God doing everything for you. This is grace. The whole New Testament unveils to us this one thing, that grace is not just a kind of a physical, material blessing. Grace in the New Testament is just God himself. Not only for enjoyment, but also doing everything for us. Anything that you do, that is flesh. Anything that God does for you, that is grace. Ron, the flesh is an awful thing, and it's condemned strongly in the Bible. It seems that to be able to recognize it should not be that difficult. But the definition that we just received is very surprising. Why would we say that anything that is not out of grace is the flesh? Okay, I'm not trying to be clever with you, but we say that because that's the truth. Grace is God himself coming to us to be our supply, our enjoyment, our strength, our ability. To reject grace is to reject God. So if we do something for God without grace, that is, without God, then with what are we doing it? The only answer is, it's the flesh. Very active, seemingly in a good thing, but still the flesh. But if we allow, in our experience, grace to come in, that is, allow God to come in, to produce everything, to do everything, to be everything to us, 
then spontaneously the flesh will be set aside and God as grace will produce something in us. The picture of Abraham producing Ishmael on the one hand and Isaac on the other hand points out the difference. The concubine, Hagar, signifies the law. Abraham's going to Hagar signifies Abraham exercising his flesh to attempt to produce something to fulfill the requirements of the law. And according to Galatians, that's flesh producing flesh. Abraham experienced the circumcision after this, signifying the application of the cross to the flesh. And later, Abraham goes to Sarah, who represents grace, and produces Isaac. So Christians, the busy ones, are so active producing things. But God cares for the source and the nature. If it's something not done by grace, in reality, it's flesh, and it's rejected by God, just as Ishmael was rejected. But if it's something produced by grace, then the outcome will be something God is pleased with because it will be something of Christ. We have to see what the flesh is. We have to agree with God concerning the flesh. And we have to experience the crucifixion of the flesh. Simultaneously, we need to know what grace is. We need to recognize our urgent and desperate need of grace, not merely as unmerited favor, but as God himself, as our enjoyment. Well, let's go back to Witness Lee, and then you and I will return for some more fellowship. How to deal with this flesh? We have to identify ourselves with the uh, interceding Christ, and we have to join ourselves to the slaying, fighting spirit. Now, we have seen this. But this flesh is not only versus Greece, but also versus kingship. It's not a small thing. And this is why for the coming of God's kingdom, there is the need of thorough dealing with the flesh. Flesh has to go. Then the kingdom can come. Where flesh is, there's no kingdom of God. When kingdom of God comes, flesh is gone. Like Paul told us already, that all flesh is not able. It cannot be subject to God. What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is a full subjection of everything to God in the whole universe, flesh, is altogether impossible to be subject to God. Amalek, in the eyes of God, was considered a hand against God's throne. Amalek tried to overthrow God's throne, as Satan did. Satan, in ancient times, did the same thing. Genesis 17, verse 16 says, because there is such a hand against the throne of God, so God will war against Amalek from generation through generation. Now you can see Amalek is versus God's authority. Check with yourself. Your flesh, no need to say the bad flesh, even your good flesh is a kind of an enemy against God's authority. 
Satan is one with your flesh. Satan has a principle. He never comes to you in himself. He comes to you either in your wife, or in your husband, or in your child, or in a brother, or in a sister. And many times, just in yourself. He came to you in yourself. Satan didn't come to Eve in himself. He came to Eve in a serpent. And one day in Matthew 16, he came to Lord Jesus in Peter. Every time you exercise your flesh, that flesh is just an instrument, a cloak, a covering of Satan. That is Satan in you. Ron, there was something here that reminded me of John 6 in the New Testament when the Lord spoke to all the disciples about the eating of his flesh and drinking of his blood. And the Bible says that the people went away because this was a hard saying and they couldn't bear it or take it. Ron, what we just heard in a sense is a hard saying, that Satan comes cloaked in our flesh. Is Satan really in us, Ron? We say an emphatic yes to this, but we say it with... We believe the proper understanding of what the Bible reveals concerning this. Let me refer to Matthew 16, when Peter interrupted the Lord speaking about the Lord's going to the cross, and Peter said, This shall not be to you. The Lord turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. So the Lord himself indicated that in this instance, Peter was the practical expression of Satan. When we say that Satan is in us, we mean that in our fallen being, we are subjectively related to Satan. We're not saying that the devil, Satan, does not have an objective existence, and we are not saying that our being was not good by creation. We are saying that with the fall, something actually entered into human nature. The element of sin, which is the nature of Satan, has come into us to be our constituent. And sin, especially as revealed in Romans 5, 6, and 7, is really a person. If you read what these chapters of Romans say about sin— you will see that sin is described in a way of personification. So to be exact, we would say, because the Bible reveals it, Satan as sin dwells in us. Satan injected his nature with his satanic life into our being. And when this sinful nature acts, it is the practical, subjective acting of Satan himself. Furthermore, in John eight forty four, the Lord said, You are of your father the devil. You consider, with our human father, we not only have an objective relationship. The father is the father. The son and daughters are the sons and daughters, objectively. But we have an intrinsic bond in life because something of our human fathers in our very constituent. So this is what we're saying, that Satan as sin dwells in us, cloaked through the flesh. To not recognize this indicates 
we don't know ourselves in the light of God and of his word. If we know the significance of John 3.14 and Romans 8.3, we will realize that we are sinners not only in the sense that we have disobeyed God, but we're sinners in the sense that we have been constituted with sin as the nature of Satan. Well, Ron, there's a story in 1 Samuel 15 that refers also to Amalek, and we're going to hear a reference to it in this coming section. Give us the background of the story just to set up this portion that we have ahead. Saul had been appointed and anointed king. He was required to utterly destroy Amalek, including Agag, the king. Instead of doing this, he spared what he considered the best things related to Amalek and spared Agag himself. Samuel came on the scene and Samuel dealt with the situation. But in particular, he spoke strongly to Saul. Because you have failed in this matter, you have not dealt utterly with Amalek, because you have actually rebelled against God's authority yourself, you will no longer be king. So uh, the issue of that event was the loss of kingship. This is a fact of history. What is crucial for us is to know the spiritual significance and relevance of this historical fact to us right here and right now. Well, let's join Witness Lee for our final section today. We need the revelation, a strong light shining over us to show us that whatever we are is Amalek. You have to try it utterly. Don't take an excuse. Saul, in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, at least told Samuel two or three lies. He said he was not the person that kept the best cattle, but the people. I couldn't find a verse that tells us Saul wanted to kill all the cattle, but the people said, no, king, don't do it. We, we like to keep. I believe that was a lie. He did it. He was very happy about what he did, you know. Saul went to uh, build a place. That means to build a monument. Like in Washington, you have the uh, monument of Washington. Saul built a monument for himself. He was happy about it. So he told Samuel the lie that was done by the people. And then... He told Samuel all the best cattle were uh, spared for a purpose. For what purpose? To offer sacrifice to God. I don't believe Saul had that much heart for the Lord. I do believe rather that was a lie. At least he lied to Samuel. You may say you might be better than Saul. When I read this chapter in the past, I fully recognize Saul was me. I might be worse than Saul. We all have to see something here to see what is the flesh and how flesh is versus the grace and how flesh is even versus the kingship, the authority of God. If we would be careless 
about dealing with our flesh, we surely will lose our kingship, mm. like Saul. Right. And this indicates that we cut ourselves off from God. We spontaneously join ourselves to God's enemy. This is serious. The Lord have mercy among us that uh, we may learn something of the flesh. Ron, this is an extremely sober point. As we look at the example of Saul in 1 Samuel, he eventually lost his kingship due to his unwillingness to deal with the flesh. We've covered many times on this program, Ron, that there's no way for a believer to lose their eternal salvation. So what does it mean that we may lose the kingship? It means two things. It means that right here, right now, in our Christian life, we have lost our kingship, spiritually speaking. Romans 5 speaks of reigning in life and of grace reigning unto eternal life. If we are honest with the Lord, we will have to admit that we may lose our spiritual kingship. We are not reigning in life. We may not even know what it means to reign in life then what does it mean that grace is reigning unto eternal life? So we may not lose our salvation, but we lose our practical spiritual kingship in our life now. If that's our situation, and that's how we end our Christian life, we will lose the kingship in a second sense, in that when the Lord comes back and the kingdoms of the world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he reigns on the earth— will not be included. We will not be there receiving the kingdom as a reward. Only the overcomers, that is, those who maintain their kingship, develop their kingship, and exercise their kingship to reign in life now, will reign with the Lord as kings in the coming age. Now, after the millennial kingdom, when we are the new Jerusalem in the new heaven and the new earth, All the children of God, all the saved ones, all who are now transformed and glorified, they will reign as kings forever and ever. So even the loss of the kingship is experiential and dispensational, but not eternal. This is what the Bible calls a word of righteousness. But God's people need this. Salvation is marvelous. Redemption is glorious. But redemption brings us back to God's purpose and God's economy. If we experience the saving life of Christ and the reigning life of Christ and deal with the flesh and reign as life now, we will maintain our kingship and we will be rewarded with kingship in the coming age. If we scoff at this kind of truth, If we continue to go the way of the flesh, we will be today's Saul's, dethroned and rejected, and we will not have the kingdom reward. However, we can be assured our salvation is eternally secure, and because it is, God will gain all of us, and we will be glorified kings, if not in this age, and if not in the next age, at the very least, in and for eternity. 
Well, Ron, that is a very fitting and proper note to close on. As we just have just a fleeting few seconds remaining, I do have a quick postscript question for you, and that is, if you would just make a brief comment, it was Saul's unwillingness to deal with the good aspects of Amalek that really created the problem. And that's probably a warning that's suitable for us as well, isn't it? A critical warning. For instance, you may recognize you have a problem with your temper. That's the flesh. You want to deal with it. But you may not realize your patience is also the flesh. Even your love, your humility may be the flesh. If we do not allow the cross of Christ to touch all our natural and therefore fleshly virtues, we are perhaps unknowingly sparing major portions of the flesh. If we go one step further and presume to offer that kind of flesh to God, we are in serious trouble with God's administration. We need to have the light that Paul had in Philippians 3 and count everything as lost and everything as dung, good or bad, and take Christ as everything. That is God's desire and God's intention in God's economy. Well, I've used the time that I normally have to talk about the life study messages, uh, but it was worth it. For Ron Kangas today, I'm Chris Wilde, and thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this program. For more information on Witness Lee and Watchman Nee, please visit our website, lsm.org. Again, that's lsm.org. Thanks for listening today.